Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. So hi, everyone. Today, we are super excited to introduce our guest, Fotini, who is a negotiations expert and the author of Say Less, Get More. Fotini, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm always happy to have a chat. Yeah. So I've obviously given a little bit of a snippet there that you're a negotiations expert, but I'd love for you to share a little bit more about your background and um, maybe if you want to share a little bit about your, your new book as well, we would be happy to share that with our audience. Yeah. So I have a background, first of all, in small business. So I grew up in a family business and, uh, and then went and got, went into the corporate world, got my MBA and went into manufacturing. So I worked for companies like L'Oreal and eventually was recruited into consulting where I started traveling the globe and training folks on how to be more effective negotiators, everybody from the CEO down to the junior analyst were on my workshops. And then it was companies who went, well, it's great that you trained our team, but we have a hundred million on the line. We have a billion on the line. What do we do? What do we say? And I started holding their hands through these real life high stakes negotiations. Um, and then after a number of years of doing that, I decided it was time for me to, um, to make a change. And I quit my job and it was the clients who went, so when are you going to come back and work with us again? And I said, I don't work for that company anymore. I said, we didn't hire the company. We hired Fotini. Um, so kind of accidentally started a business <laughs> about seven years ago, and that's evolved into a, lo- a lot of really cool opportunities, including, you know, being tapped on the shoulder and being asked to speak at at national conferences and women's events and all sorts of really cool things like that. And eventually Harper Collins came knocking and said, would you write a book? And so this year um, my book launched, it's called Say Less, Get More and unconventional negotiation techniques to get what you want. And my hope for it is that anybody who picks it up will feel seen and included. Um, It is an inclusive negotiation book because I too often have read books or have gotten advice that just didn't work for me as a woman in business, as somebody who was younger, as somebody who was singled out for one reason or another, not everything that was being told to me by the older white men was working for me. So the philosophy of this book is it's the on-ramp versus the stairs. The privileged group can use the stairs. Most able-bodied people can use the stairs, but everybody can use the on-ramp, including those who can't use the stairs. So hopefully this is the on-ramp to better conversations at home as well as at work, because we actually negotiate every single day. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I'll guess a little spoiler. One of the first stories you open with in the book is a trip to the hospital and how you actually had to negotiate there. And that struck me as so different way, like a different way of thinking in a, like I had never thought of, you know, when you're talking to your healthcare professionals, you're negotiating. And so really what you're saying is you're negotiating all the time and it's really just a form of communication. 
Yeah. I mean, we are negotiating not just monetary things because in Canada where, you know, my story took place, um, I didn't have to worry about the cost of going to the hospital. I have had to negotiate in the U S on occasion for those, for similar things. But when I, when we're negotiating every day, we're negotiating more for our time, for our stress levels. And so when I was in the hospital, it was this aha moment of going, I can negotiate better care and reduce stress. I can negotiate better attention or brand name versus generic drugs. I can negotiate better timing so that I can go home and sleep in my own bed instead of being stuck here. There's all of these things that required some assertive conversation in order to make it work, but it made a world of difference in terms of my personal stress levels and what that meant for my health as well. For those folks who might be in more marginalized groups or starting, you know, with less privilege as an employee or something like that, negotiating a wage or as a patient um, in the a medical system, that kind of thing. Or maybe they're just nervous about looking at their everyday conversations as negotiations. What kind of advice would you give them to kind of get started? I would say the first piece of advice I would give is to reframe it. So people tell me all the time, I'm not good at negotiation. I don't have the practice negotiating. And my questions back to them are, are you good at building trust with people? Can you build relationships? Do you ask great questions? Do you know how to shut up? If you can do those four things, then you are negotiating all the time. That, that's what an effective negotiator does. So if you can look at it from those skills, then it doesn't feel nearly as daunting. Um, and it doesn't feel nearly as something that's insurmountable or difficult or ugly or you know competitive or combative. So when you go in and reframe your head about negotiation, it actually becomes much easier. It unlocks all sorts of possibilities in your brain. I think, you know, that's a great point that we need to reframe it because I think obviously there's another negotiation book out there that's been around for quite a while. Um, and it's the FBI hostage negotiator, but, and, and he does give some great tips in his book, but I do feel like it puts it in such an extreme circumstance and an extreme framing, right? Like most of us aren't negotiating hostage situations. Um, we might be negotiating salary net salaries, like starting salaries, maybe vacation. And I mean, like you said, everything else kind of that's on a daily basis, like a, you know, time being treated in the, in the ER can be a negotiation as well. Yeah. I'd say that, you know, it, I, I love some of the insights that come from that book, but there are so many circumstances that we face the vast majority of our negotiations every single day are going to have repercussions in terms of relationships. They're going to be much more collaborative. When you're comparing to a hostage negotiation, once that hour or however long it takes is up, you're never talking to that person again. And so even though there are some negotiations in our life that might feel a bit more hostile, um, they're, for the most part, they can be much more collaborative. There are ways to turn things around. So I'd say it is, it is really important to frame that and get the context to make sure you go, hey, this is a person who wants to deal with me. This is a person who I'm going to have to, you know, talk to day in and day out again. So I'm going to be much more careful about my language. I don't have to treat it like a boxing match. And when you can think of it that way, it really does go, okay, what, what is it that we can agree to? What do we have in common here? How can we approach it so that there's some value in it for everybody involved? Not everybody is going to have the same value, perhaps, but it's not as if you're going in there going, yes, I want to beat this person and I want to make them bloody and bruised and pay for all of those things. Those 
situations are very few and far between. So when you can take the hostility out of, out of it, then I think it becomes a much easier process. And it just frees up the space in your brain to be able to have more rational thought, to conquer whatever's coming in front of you. There's so much really interesting stuff about neuroplasticity and the way the brain works and confidence building and all that kind of stuff that I dig into all the time. I find psychology fascinating. The way you think about things and the way you frame them really does have an impact on how you perform. So if you're going in there assuming it's gonna feel like a hostage situation, it's going to really kind of shrink your capabilities in terms of what you're capable of. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I love psychology and I've never thought about it from the perspective of coming into a negotiation that way, but I think that that's a great point that people um, can definitely leverage. Now, one other thing, I, I, th- I believe you mentioned it in your book, you've talked about your negotiations, you know, from a a bit of a more monetary perspective. Um, And what I mean by that is, I think it was in your book that you mentioned, you believe you've negotiated retiring, was it eight or 20 years earlier? I can't remember. Yeah. So there is a study that came out in, I think, 2003 that showed one single negotiation, the very first negotiation coming out of school, the average person who negotiated got an increase of 7.5% just from attempting to negotiate. And when they, when another study took that a step further, they went, okay, so let's say you increased your first salary at a school from by 7.4%. Now let's compare the person who did negotiate and the person who didn't. Let's give them the same salary increases and the same promotions for the next 35 years. That person who did negotiate now gets to retire eight years earlier. And when I look at this personally, and I apply that same math, because I'm like, I've negotiated my first, my second, every raise, every promotion, I've negotiated my house, my car, all of these things around me that have a ton of monetary value. I have to assume it's a minimum of 20 years of retirement that I've saved myself. Now, in some cases, I've traded up. So instead of retirement, I got a nicer car or, you know, I got a really great uh, house or whatever it was. So, but there, I've managed to increase that value because of these opportunities. And so it, it, it pains me to hear people say that they avoided negotiating or that they were too intimidated to negotiate because it is chipping away at your stress levels. It is chipping away at your early retirement goals when you avoid those things. And so, would you say that negotiation directly impacts your ability to be financially independent? A hundred percent. And I mean, I, I can't even tell you half the quotes of the studies that I can share with you, but, and I think you know them as well as I do. There's study after study that shows us people expect to negotiate, especially when it comes to salaries. And there's so many more things outside of just salary, even in a job negotiation. There's things like RSP contributions or 401ks if you're in the US. There's um, bonuses, there's moving um, expenses, there's there's equity, there's flexibility. So even the ability to work from home will save you on daycare costs. Those are things that it can go in your pocket, stay in your wallet instead of expended. So there's so many opportunities for you to increase your wealth at every turn when it comes to those salary negotiations specifically outside of what I'm talking about, real estate and, and cars and all of the other things along the way that I've managed to negotiate. There definitely is lost opportunities or massive ways to increase your wealth, depending on how you approach it. So when we look at salary negotiations, and I think most people think when you're negotiating your salary, 
kind of your, maybe your only opportunity to do so would be, you know, when you sign that first contract, right? So you you go through all the whole interview process, they offer you $80,000, you know, you come back and you say, um, you know, maybe I was, I was more thinking 85,000, they come back, they say 85, great. Maybe it wasn't that straightforward, but is there opportunity? And do you have any advice for people who are, you know, multiple years into that job and based on many of the companies I've worked for, they kind of have like a performance review thing. And then it's kind of like, Hey, this is what you're going to be paid now. There isn't really that discussion that you might have when you're first accepting a job. Yeah. And I would say definitely there is opportunity. I know it because I've lived it and I've also coached people through it. So if you are that person who is waiting for that personal evaluation time, it's too late because what happens when you're doing that personal evaluation is let's say your personal evaluation is in December and that's when your boss tells you, Hey, here's your new promotion or your new merit increase or your, um, uh, what is it? The inflation increase that you're getting this year. What happened before that is a bunch of executives a month before that, maybe even more, sat in a room and said, okay, guys, we only have 2% increases to give to the entire company. So some people are going to get nothing and some people are going to get more than 2%. Who do we think deserves what? Who do we think deserves a promotion and so on to work with, to allocate this budget? So somebody was there championing you or perhaps not, depending on how you've handled yourself. And that was the moment the negotiation was actually done. And that was somebody representing you in that negotiation. And so now it, and back in December at that PE time, they're presenting it to you. If you try to negotiate, then it's going to be really difficult. There's a number of hoops to jump through because they're going, where am I going to get this money? Everything's already been allocated. It's, it's, a, it's a much more difficult process versus if a few months before the executives all got back together, you set up a meeting with your boss and you go, hey, I just want some feedback on how am I doing right now? Where am I charting? How can I make sure I maximize the big promotion coming up or my next salary increase, you're going to make sure that you're talking about all the great things that you've done and asking for feedback on it so they can acknowledge it as well. You're going to make sure that you are very well versed in what your market value is based on other people with my experience and my level of education and this and this and this, here's what I would expect for somebody who's achieved these things. What do you think? How do we get there? So ask lots of questions so that you can really map out your way of getting there with this person's guidance and mentorship. Now they're going to feel like they're part of that journey with you. And they're more likely to be a much better champion when it's time for you to get behind those doors. But you need to start the process early. You don't want to be waiting until the last minute when it's going to be much too late because in order to give you that increase, they're going to have to claw it back from somebody else. That's not going to go over well. So how do you get ahead of that? How do you position really early and manage expectations and show them what you're capable of and come, like I said, prepared with that information about your market value? You need to make sure you do your research and your homework before you have those conversations as well. I love that. And I think so often these merit cycles that happen are kept very hush hush from, you know, individual contributors. If you're not a manager, you don't really know what's going on. So I think, you know, having, if you know their the fiscal year end is December, then, you know, backing it up a couple of months or even doing a mid-year check-in with your boss would be a, a great step to take. Yeah. And if you're the one being assertive and not waiting around for the company timelines, you can get ahead of those timelines. You can go, I know we have our, our mid-year in August, 
love to catch up with you in June or July before everybody's on vacation to make sure I'm on track. I don't want to wait until the last minute. I would love to share with you some of my thoughts and ideas on how to make sure I'm best positioned for August. Would love any feedback you have for me. People love to hear I'd love your feedback because it's, it's a nice little stroke to their ego, but it also, like I said, makes them more engaged in the process. So now your, your outcomes are sort of something that they're accountable to as well because they guided you there. Very cool. Um, this is just making me think about folks that might not be in the same situations that we have found ourselves in. Maybe folks who are going to be in minimum wage work for you know decades or folks who are going to be working part-time for their entire lives temporary seasonal workers um, or maybe even folks who are on some sort of government benefits like maybe age do you have any advice for those folks who perhaps the market value or the the market comparisons aren't what they should be um, or what those folks would like them to be yeah, I mean, that's a tough one because transparency is critical. So knowing what your value is, is going to make you far more credible when you go in there. But the other thing to think about is how do you compare to other people, even in your field? So even if you're a part-time worker or something like that, let's say you're working retail and you're making minimum wage, but you're bringing in more sales than anybody else, or you're working more flexible hours, or you have more responsibilities than the person next to you who's also making minimum wage. How do you make sure your manager, the person that you're reporting to, your champion knows some of those things so that they can go to bat for you as well. Because I've even helped minimum wage workers get increases. Maybe they're not massive increases, but a dollar an hour can make a world of difference for some people when you're in that boat. So just because you're part-time or just because you're in a minimum wage environment doesn't mean there isn't some wiggle room even in those environments as well. If you stand out from the crowd, if you're doing something that's above average, why wouldn't you be getting paid above average wages? If you are contributing more than the average person, if you're not as easily replaceable because somebody who comes in is not going to put in the same effort you will or the same productivity that you have, then make sure you lean on that when you go in to have those conversations. Show how much more productive you are. Speak credibly to objective information, not I think. If you hear yourself saying the words, I think, that's your opinion. And then go, I don't think that's the case. They're now going to start arguing with you about their opinion. But you can say, based on this data, based on the fact that I spend more hours here, based on that I'm the one that has a key, based on the one that I'm the one that knows how to use the POS system better than everybody else here, I would expect to be compensated. What can we do? And then go in with a questioning strategy instead of an accusatory one. What can we do to make sure that I'm rewarded for all these extra things that I'm bringing to the table? There's always tiny little opportunities and those little tiny opportunities can add up big in, in over the course of a long term. That's awesome, thank you. So when we look at, you know, different groups of people that are negotiating, obviously on this podcast, we talk a lot about women's issues. Do, do you find women negotiate less than their male counterparts? Generally, I would say yes. And I say that anecdotally because I, whenever I teach MBA classes, my office hours are always full of women coming to see me, usually women of color who are asking me, are you sure it's okay that I do this? It's almost like they're asking me for permission. So anecdotally, I definitely see there's a difference. Statistically, that it definitely used to be the case, though what we're finding now is that women are asserting themselves as frequently as men. 
um, but they're still not getting the same results thanks to you know bias and misogyny and all of those wonderful things. So society still has to catch up to women's efforts around it. So I'd say the younger the woman, the more likely she is to be uninhibited. Um, as you get more, more, it's weird to me to think about it this way, but more experience doesn't necessarily make you more assertive. I think there's more on the line and there's probably more pressure and therefore people won't shy away from it. But newer generations coming in who have had role models around them, who have seen women like me, you know, standing at the front of a classroom instead of just older white men, who have had mothers who were working as opposed to, you know, people in my generation who might've had moms as homemakers and didn't have those role models of women in the workforce the way that we do today. So the younger the woman coming in, the less likely she's also come up against the glass ceiling and that's not as discouraging now anymore. But when we start bumping your head there, it gets really frustrating. Um, and so I do think that that we have more work to do, but we've made vast improvements in terms of how frequently women are attempting it. We still have way more work to do and how successful they are at it. And that's one of the hopes for this book is to give them the tools to you know, work around some of the misogyny. We're not going to solve it in a day. My hope is that we solve it in, in my lifetime, but there are definitely ways to make life a little bit easier um, by using some some more conscientious tools to get us there. Yeah. And, you know, going back to what you said earlier, when you talk about saying, I think versus, I liked what you said based on, I have found, and I've caught myself saying, I think to be less uh, assertive in certain situations when there are people, or it's usually men who don't like it necessarily when a woman is like, this is the way it is. And it's not that the tone of my voice changes. It's just the words that are coming out of my mouth are different and are different maybe than what they're expecting or what they're used to hearing. And I think they find that challenging or they get uncomfortable with that. Yeah. You want to try and take you want to try and take any accusatory tone out of it. So you don't want to be going, you did this, right? If you've ever gone through therapy or marriage counseling or anything like that, the last thing you want to do is start accusing somebody or being demanding, like you need to do this, or you did that. That's not going to go over very well. And that I think it feels to some people that you're getting on your, your high horse type of thing. Well, I think this, and it makes people very defensive versus when you can say based on, or it seems that as if almost like if a third person were to say it like this, I'm not suggesting you start speaking into about yourself <laughs> in third person. Cause that would get really strange, like sitcom pretty strange. Um, but if you can make it seem more objective, like it seems that based on the information I'm seeing or based on this trend, it seems as though this would be a, a more realistic approach or a more, a, a less, a less um, combative approach, or this might be more successful than some of the other um, approaches that are out there. So there are ways to make it a little less, I'm trying to think of the right words here, but um, fi like fiery almost in a way or charged, I think is the best word for it. The second someone hears you thinking your opinion and inserting your, yourself into this versus objective information, it really does charge them up and make them more defensive. That's really interesting and definitely something to consider for sure when going into those negotiations. Cause I think how I just said it, I think when, <laughs> you know, you're going into these situations, people's feelings definitely, I, I believe have to be taken into account or, or else you're exactly right. They, people start to get charged about things. 
Yeah, I mean, you also need to consider the perspective of the, of the other person at all times. So no matter where you are in the world, no matter what culture you're in, you have to think about who is this other person and how they're going to respond to this. If I start with I thinks, are they going to get, um, am I going to push their ego button or are they going to be totally cool with it? I don't know. But the 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 safest answer for me is to remove all of those potential triggers and make your language as, as clean and succinct as possible. It's one of the reasons why the title of the book is Say Less, Get More. That's a really, really neat. Um, I just keep coming back to something you said. You said society has to catch up to the efforts that women have made. And we were gonna ask a question about folks from different backgrounds, different demographics. Um, but now I'm kind of thinking of something else. Could we apply your negotiation strategies? Could we apply it to kind of help move society along so we're not, you know, almost always on a back foot when we're entering these situations? I don't know if that's where all women are right now, but perhaps, you know, you start to get that intersectionality and different levels of marginalization start um, crossing over. So if you always feel like you're on the back foot in a negotiation, is there anything like, we can do to maybe help get some of those other more privileged folks to to move along and work with us what do you think yeah i mean i just had a conversation earlier today with somebody who asked me about they're like what if english is my second language how do i build my confidence there when i'm searching for my words and my response back was English is your second language. That means you speak another language, which is something most people don't do. So that means you're a freaking rock star. So you need to own the fact that, hey, I'm not doing this in my native language. So I'm going to take some extra time. I may need some extra time or I may need to look in the dictionary for the right word so that I'm not leading us astray or I want to make sure I'm as clear as possible. Would you prefer it? I did it in my native language. Would that be easier for you or is it easier for you for me to speak English? So it's almost like I can own that moment. And instead of being on the back foot now, because I'm owning it, now I'm the one that's making them feel like they're more, less uh, they're less confident because, oh, I don't speak two languages as fluently as she does. I'd never be able to do it in her language. So I guess I'm going to pay more attention and I'm going to have a little bit more respect for this person. In fact, it's something I did the first time I, um, the first time I ran a workshop in Athens, um, I was doing it in Greek for the first time and I speak Greek at home with my parents. So it's okay, but it's not business Greek. And it, I was out of practice for quite some time. And so I was getting in front of this group of men who in a very misogynistic culture who were much older than me. And uh, I said, look, you can obviously tell um, this is not my most comfortable language. I speak English fluently. I suspect if I started running this in English, you wouldn't feel all that comfortable. So bear with me. I'm going to take a. I'm going to take a few minutes to make sure. And from time to time, you might hear me using the wrong word. I appreciate you letting me know what the right one is, as opposed to me feeling diminished if they were to correct me. I'm owning that moment. And so I would tell women in general, you can own those moments. When I knew I was going to go deep into the heart of Texas. And men were going to say things to me, like some of the stories I tell in the book are, what are you going to teach me, little girl? The second I knew that, I knew it was coming. Something stupid was going to come out of their mouths. I was certain of it. It was just the culture. That was the dynamic in the oil and gas industry. It was expected. But because I expected it, there's, there's power in that knowledge. So when you know it's coming, again, you can own that moment. You're going to go, well, sit tight and find out. If they say something like, how is someone as young as you going to be able to teach me something? It's going, well. 
it must be pretty amazing if they're bringing in someone like as young as me, then, isn't it? Um, so it's being able, again, to own your space there. And it's using these skill sets that I'm talking about in the book. So asking great questions. When I asked the question in Athens about, would it be more comfortable for you to, for me to speak in English? Or would you prefer me to speak in my, my Greek, which is a little bit slower? Now, all of a sudden it's going, oh, they have to answer that question and they have to admit that they would never be comfortable doing it as opposed to, I bet you wouldn't be comfortable here. Now I'm going to be perceived as aggressive, but I could be perceived as assertive by asking really great questions. So it's about making sure you take these tools and you apply them at every single aspect of your life. Like one of the biggest ones is the pause button. I talk about it constantly. There's pause markers all over the book throughout the sections because it is so important to take a moment and regain your composure and allow your rational thought to come back in. Studies show us that um, negotiators who actually say less literally and pause more are the ones who usually have the best results. The same is true when you are having a difficult conversation of any kind. So if you can take a moment to go, I need to think about that. Again, you're owning that space. You're going to look far more confident. And so it's about, it's about not letting somebody diminish you in that moment the way true microaggression and misogyny might show up, you can take charge of it now and turn it around and make them on, go on their heels instead of the other way around. Okay. I love, love, love the owning the second language thing. I've never, not that I speak two languages anywhere near fluent, but I think you're also garnering some empathy from your, from the people in that situation that you're presenting to, because, you know, they're like, well, I, don't speak English fluently. So obviously we're going to be empathetic towards the fact that, you know, she's now going to be presenting this in, in Greek. So I think that, you know, that's really interesting for sure. I, I totally not thought about it from that perspective. I mean, the same can be applied for any set of circumstances. So you could say like, I, I built this podcast all while it, while I was having a baby, breastfeeding a baby or giving birth to somebody. So they could see it as, well, you're a new mom. I don't know if it's really going to be great quality. Yeah, I'm doing it. And I did it with all of these circumstances around me. That's how much of a rock star I am. So whether it's a second language, whether it's juggling kids, whether it's renovating a home at the same time as doing all of these other things, there are these things where they could, one person could call it a distraction or a disadvantage. You can turn that around and go, look at me doing this despite all of those things. I bet you couldn't do that without having to say it quite as, as, uh, as, as quite. So you're, way. you're coming to my next salary negotiation. Is that correct? <laughs> I'll, I'll be a little bug in your ear. if you want. <laughs> I was just going to say, is there anything that you think is super important that we know Fotini that I missed asking? I would say it goes back to that on-ramp versus stairs analogy. So The key is this book is for everybody. If it worked for me as a woman who is 15 years younger than the, than my average client and who was always, you know, who has a name that nobody can pronounce, I guarantee you, if it works for the lowest common denominator, it will you. All it takes is a few little tools to get over the hump and any hesitation that you might have. And you will be amazed at what opportunities you can unlock when you've got those tools at your disposal. Wonderful. So where can people find you, Fotini? Everywhere. I am. Um, uh, Instagram is one of my favorites at the moment. You can find me there at Fotini Icon. I'm also even doing TikTok these days. And 
LinkedIn. That's exciting. Yeah, uh, it's it's really challenging my creative juices, and um, and of course LinkedIn is one of the easiest spots where I'm always posting stuff there as well. And you can find all of that stuff on my website at proteinicon.com as well. And where can we get your book? It is everywhere books are sold from Amazon to Indigo to Barnes and Noble in the States. So it is audio and ebook and hardcover wherever you purchase your books. And I have to say, when I got my copy, it's a perfect little size to go into my purse, which is yes. fantastic. I love that part of it. It's not this huge book that I'm trying to shove into my bag with, you know, my wallet and my keys and everything else. It just slides right in there. It's wonderful. Yeah, like it, it's perfect to slide into your carry-on. Maybe the next time you're about to go somewhere and you want to brush up before next big meeting or read on the subway or whatever you're going to do. I was actually really thrilled that the publishers um, printed it that way. Awesome. That is actually, I have one last question for you. What's the biggest or most exciting thing that you've ever negotiated? Um, <laughs> that's a great question. I think the most exciting ones are when I have to negotiate with my dad. So if you've read the book, I come from a big fat Greek family. And I think like one of my most proud moments was when my dad asked me to call the telephone company for him. And I was like, wait, you're going to ask me to do it instead of doing it yourself. Like that was the moment I knew I kind of made it because my father could see me in that light. Um, and I've, you know, managed to kind of use it in ways where he didn't realize I was using it on him. So those have been also quite rewarding. Those are the, the, the greatest bang for my buck in terms of the ROI that I get out of my negotiations. Cause the, those are the highest stress levels and they come down the, the best when I'm using my negotiation skills. Oh, that's awesome. And you were also nicknamed the negotiator early on in your life. So that's awesome yeah. that your dad, you know, him. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's good that, um, he, I guess, sees you in that way and allows you to help him out from time to time. It's, it's funny when he catches me doing it. Cause he was like, we don't need to hear from you negotiator. Like that's something he started when I was like six. And so even now once in a blue moon, if I'm speaking it for my mom or my sister, he's like, no, no, we don't need to hear from you negotiator. So he's catching on slowly. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode where we've all learned a ton from your, your tips and tricks and, um, People can follow you and find you online at Fotini Icon and make sure you grab the, the book, Say Less, Get More. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to hear what people think of it. Gone, thought I lost my mind. Creature without a spine. Took back what should be Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Let us know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Pink Tax Podcast is recorded in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Our music is provided by Margot. You can find her work at noisebymargot.com. 
Sound editing by Peter Dobson. If you'd like to support the Pink Tax podcast, you can make a donation at liberapay.com slash pinktaxpodcast and submit a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.